Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Murking fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Allie Newman This week, I've been thinking about our strong desire to strive for independence and freedom, to battle valiantly, conquer noble challenges, and emerge victorious, whether that's a victory over a stubborn bottle top or an 85-pound propeller puller. We are driven to seek adventure and travel, especially the Sagittarians among us, and yet we somehow must balance these desires with our critically deep internal need for connection, family, identity, and belonging, to be a valued member of our tribe, and for some, the need to suffer greatly for our cause and painfully surmount all odds brings even greater rewards and a deeper sense of satisfaction, purpose, pride, and achievement. My guest today is Maxwell Taylor Kennedy. He's a sailor, attorney, historian, and teacher. He's the author of Danger's Hour, the story of the USS Bunker Hill, and the kamikaze pilot who crippled her, and the best-selling compilation, Make Gentle the Life of This World, the vision of Robert F. Kennedy, and his new book, Sea Change, A Man, A Boat, A Journey Home. Welcome, Max, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Ellie, thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. So I want to start with setting the stage around your adventure from California to deliver a schooner to the nation's capital. And in Sea Change, you take the reader right along with you on the, on this wild ride. It's definitely a page turner um, and exciting from the get-go. And it begins in a California boat dock, and um, we end up in the, the mud of Panama. And maybe we could just share a little bit of the history of the schooner in America and how the plight of re- creating an experience and, and teachings around the Pearl began. Thanks so much again, Ellie. The, the schooner is my favorite boat. It, it, she's, they're probably the best boats ever made, and we really owe our independence as Americans, not just our independence from England, but the way we think independently and, and are able to act independently um, to this kind of boat. They were really invented in New England, and they were used because of their particular rig to carry goods all up and down the eastern seaboard, uh, you know, uh, grain and uh, wool and sugar and tobacco. And in the mid-1700s, the British began trying to tax the schooner captains when they would go from Massachusetts to Rhode Island uh, or Rhode Island to New York. And... The schooner captains were like, I'm not paying your tax to go from this place to the other. And they would just sail into a different port or unload at night. And this began really the insidious thought that we don't have to do what a king says. We can decide what we want to do on our own. And that really, that ability to go out onto the ocean and, uh, and to drive a boat and be in control really is what gave us the the control over our own lives. And why chronicle this particular adventure? When was it or what determined for you the the need or the desire to write a book about this journey? That is really funny. Um, Norman Mailer uh, said that you should never write a book unless you have exhausted all other possibilities. And essentially... I tried very hard not to write this book for five or six years, and eventually I couldn't help myself and just had to write it down. I think it was a really intense experience 
for me and uh, and probably for my wife as well. And uh, and I needed to record it. And then at the end, I really was very close to not publishing it and just giving a couple of copies to my children. But I ended up deciding to put it out there. I think it was probably an intense experience for anyone that came into contact with you um, at any point during this adventure. And and I, I think I have that validated just by by my experience this morning with you trying to get our our interview online. <laughs> and so I, I validated my guess as I was reading the book. And throughout the trip, there are such um, poignant moments of of grace and achievement and camaraderie and success. And you add into that some pirates. Uh, a number of death-defying storms, so many that by like the last one, you're like, oh, he'll be fine. So what, there's 20-foot <laughs> waves and the boat's coming about. I'm not worried about that. I have other issues. Um, you, you run into endangered turtles. The boat's leaking. You've got broken anchors. The engine is on again, off again. The, the heads are broken. You've got feces everywhere. Masts and riggings um, are breaking. You, you know, you've been poisoned a couple times. Um, spilling diesel fuel is everywhere, and it becomes sort of the norm. You run into crocodiles. Uh, you you say that things happened in Monterey Bay. That was at the beginning of the trip. That should have caused me to give up the trip. Um, was there any idea ever about doing the trip differently rather than giving it up? Hmm, that's a, a really good point. Um, and we could have done the trip very differently. Um, and there's, if we had spent a lot of money, frankly, um, and there was just something in me that, uh, didn't want to do that and wanted to try to, uh, 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 make it worth a worthwhile adventure, um, and, uh, and and take on that challenge. So I think, yes, it could have been done in a much easier way simply by fixing the boat before we left. But there's the crux, right? And 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 it's even five years later or six years later, you still stumble a bit on it. And I think that's where we'll focus the majority of our conversation today because, um, yeah, you know, a number of adages come, came up in my mind as I read the book, one being penny wise, pound foolish. Um, and, and you, again, again, you hire kind of the cheapest person, but, you know, it's admirable and it's the values you grew up with. You're trying to, to be um, spendthrifty and, and, you know, not waste and use your money. And, but again, again, it comes back to haunt you. Um, Jerry, who, who you hired to fix about he he turns out used the cheapest he also shared that ad, the ad you know you buy cheap it'll work um, the cheapest thinnest washers um, possible um, and that comes back to haunt you in in Guatemala and maybe you could tell tell the listeners why so uh, yeah so when we when we first purchased the boat uh, she needed a, a, a rebuilding at the bow. And we hired a guy, and I actually paid him quite a bit of money, a, a, a very good carpenter in San Francisco, but he bought nickel washers. And you can pay a nickel for a washer, or you can pay $4. And he bought the thinnest, weakest washers you have ever seen. And the, the entire integrity of all of his work of months came down ultimately to these four washers. And in the midst of a huge storm, in the middle of the night in Guatemala, with just waves crashing over the boats, the washers folded up and pulled through uh, and, and allowed the boats to pull through, and the rig came crashing down, and the front of the boat snapped off. And um, 
So yeah, that's a penny wise, pound foolish thing. I was thinking though, as as you were talking about uh, the uh, the Iliad and uh, why Helen didn't just go back. Why didn't they just give Helen back? And in the end, there would be no Iliad if she had gone back. And so sometimes we can't explain, I think, why we do things, except that we end up with the story, which is our life. Well, and it's a true, I thought as I was reading, it's the same as the the old film, After Hours. And when I watched that, it was making me crazy. I'm like, why doesn't he just walk home? Just walk home? Yeah. Just walk home? <laughs> but then someone said to me, if he, walked walk home, home. if he walks home, there's no movie. Like, that's not that, then there's no movie. And, and I think that that's the critical piece to remember. I had my aha moment, I think, around page 50. And I thought, it's completely logical. Um, he's setting up these situations to be able to have these experience. And um, and you kind of beat yourself up afterwards for having made these bad choices. But every time, um, and, and maybe if you, you read the book as an outsider, you'll see that, that the battle and success was worth it and that you you acknowledge that, you know, at, at you know, you spend the day and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, the propeller um, and, and you save the thousand dollar boat fee, but you spend the day fixing the propeller, which means you're in the freezing water for 24 hours, your lips are turning blue, you and your compadre have to keep jumping out, filling your wetsuits up with hot water to go back to be able to continue to to do the job. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what that was like and what was it like when you finally got that, that bolt turned. That's really interesting. Um, you know, why why did we do those things so so what had happened was uh we had to change the propellers on the on the boat and the propeller probably weighs about 85 or 90 pounds and uh so the normal way to take it off is to pull the boat out of the water and then have a caterpillar truck attach some chains to the uh propeller and pull backwards and remove it so we didn't want to pay the fee to lift the boat out of the water or for the caterpillar truck so we used the old method from the 1800s to try to remove the propeller by hand with a mechanical device that uh, had to be twisted down very tightly. And, and uh, it was, as you say, it was, in the end, an incredible experience and a great experience and amazing to try to test ourselves in the cold water, in the dark, and, um, and with these mechanical things rather than, you know, combustion engines and, uh, and electronic um, kind of methods. At the end of the book, you kind of refer to some of these behaviors and, and maybe part of the trip as self-sabotage. Um, but I think it was something else. It seems more like self-satisfying behavior. And I'm wondering what you would describe as the moments when you typically find yourself at your personal peak in your life. Hmm. Like, can you repeat that question? Yes, I, I was just thinking about, you know, because there's this back and forth throughout the book of where you, you make these choices and, and by the middle of the, the book, the reader, of course, is just like, oh my gosh, don't do it, don't do it, because you can kind of see what's going to happen. And so I, I got me thinking a lot about why you do do it and why all of us do it, and that it's much easier to 
be looking at someone else's life and to see and judge maybe whether they're making good choices or not. Um, but it's something that all of us do every day where maybe we overeat or we go back into a relationship that's not a positive one or we are doing behaviors that are not bringing us the desired result we think are, are causing us a lot of pain in the process. And you refer to that as self-sabotage. But I was thinking in a way, it, maybe it isn't, that maybe it is It's twisted a little bit, but it's self-satisfying behavior. And it got me thinking about about when those moments are that you feel like you're at your best, where you've done your best and you're at your best and, and you're the best max, you're the best version. That is such a good point, um, Ellie. The, it reminded me uh, of a friend who had, was watching the Billie Holiday film and they were watching it at a theater in Harlem and there's this terrible scene where she's, high and lying on a bed and the phone is ringing and it's producers in Hollywood and uh, and the phone just keeps ringing and she's look she's looking at the phone and it rings and rings and rings and finally someone in the audience stood up and shouted just pick up the phone and she doesn't and I think that it's much much easier to uh, look at someone's life from the outside and tell what's wrong. I can tell you what's wrong with all of my friends and everything that they should do to fix their lives, but it's really hard to tell about my own. Um, and I think that, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes. I, I, I spent uh, an afternoon once with my daughter, Summer, and uh, I was trying to get a bolt unlocked from a starter on an old truck. And we sat under that truck for four and a half hours, trying all sorts of different methods. And at the end of the day, we were able, with a hammer and wrenches and a long uh, metal tube, to open that bolt. And some would say from the outside, why did you waste an entire afternoon unscrewing a bolt you could have just taken that to a mechanic and had it done immediately and but my feeling when that bolt came just when it slid just the first quarter inch was really elation and when my daughter applied to college I read her essay and it was all about that day and um, so sometimes things that seem like a waste of time really aren't. And some of the things that may not seem important are much more important than they are. That's funny. There, it, there's clearly a, a theme of bolts and, and getting them unlocked <laughs> running through your life. Because there's a moment in your book and you talk about the inexplicable joy and pride of getting another bolt off. Um, and then a bit later, you sort of lambaste yourself because you said there are other activities that should be more meaningful to you. And I'm wondering if you found in, in the five years since the experience, some resolution there, um, your friends and family so clearly accept you for who you are. And, and I'm wondering if you found some of that acceptance as well. Um, that's a really nice point. Um, and I think it's it's funny that, that I, you bring up the word bolt because obviously it's a it's a noun and a verb, um, and you could bolt running away, um, or it could keep you in the same place, mounted and steady and solid. 
Um, and I think that um, it is funny, uh, my total inability to see how much my family and friends loved me at the time. Um, and uh, that has shifted profoundly for me, and I feel that love um, and support, and and I feel, uh, you know, joy in, when I see my friends and they feel joy when they see me and that's like the one of the greatest things in the world i mean that's what do we have left in the end except the connections that we make with other souls i'm going to go back to the bolting for just a minute because it it made me think that um as as we bolt you, this was something you talk about in in the very first pages of the book it may even be in the prologue where you talk about brave men um running away and um they're incredible uh, quotes all, all through your book, and and you have one related to that, and and this definitely, I think, so it's a theme in in both the the senses of the word, um, bolting, and you you talk about um, you said of your mother, no matter how windy or stormy the weather, she taught us always to sail, and to sail into the storm, and this was a test measuring your value, and courage, um, and and that comes up a lot through your adventure, um. And and even at one point, well, this is a different question. We'll come back to this. So let's focus on that for a minute. The the idea of sailing into the storm, and you have one experience when your son Maxie is on board, and you've sailed into a huge storm um, and not heeded the, the weather warning. So you knew the weather was coming. But growing up, this is what you'd been taught to do, that there's no better way to prepare yourself for an emergency than to pra- practice heading into storms. Um, but here you're, you're putting your son Maxie's life at risk, or, you know, he's 15, he's, he's making the choice, but you have a conversation around it, but, but he goes forward. And um, maybe we could just talk about that experience. Um, now looking back on it a bit, and maybe what it was like in the moment. Sure, I, I think that for me, there, there is nothing like the experience of sailing into a storm at sea. Um, and it just, I, this sounds completely crazy, and there are very few people who would understand, but I, I spoke with the, the captain of the boat uh, on uh, uh, the fishing show, uh, Deadliest Catch, and he said he just feels exactly the same way. So connected, so alive, so alert, and if you go in as prepared as can be, um, it can be just really emotionally uplifting. And I, I, we, I did sail with my, I've sailed with my son into many, many storms. Um, and, you know, he's in his uh, late 20s now and is uh, just one of the best young men I've ever known in my entire life. And I think a part of that is uh, because of how tough I was on him when he was young. And uh, I... So, you know, you can ask yourself, is it, is it worth it? Um, but in any case, it happened, and, and he is who he is. Your friends say of you, um, there's no one they'd rather be with in your family as well in a life-threatening situation, but you're also the one most likely to get them into one, which <laughs> might sort of sum up the book. Um, but let's talk a little bit about why they want you there. And in one um, moment in the book, 
And and I think you you could also have written a survival guide. At one moment, you're you're making lists, um, and and that could have been the title of the survival guide, making lists. And at, and you're making a list of what are the steps that need to be done for you to survive. And you look down at your hands and you say, I know these hands. And you, I think, then what what did you mean by that in that moment when you said that? I think that that was a way of centering myself. Um, and so when I'm in a situation, if I'm scuba diving or, um, you know, in, 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 in a black wreck in cold water and, or, or out at sea or even in just a situation where I'm just feeling anxiety of any kind, I try to center myself and looking at my hands and realizing that they're real and that I'm me, and I can uh, get through this, and I will. You talk about, or maybe you don't talk about it, but it's clear to the reader that your friends and family show up for you, but you show up for them as well. And I think it was so telling at one point in the book, you literally imagine them being there. You're, you're on the boat alone, and you imagine them being there, and you think, what would I do if they were here? Ellie, you're so observant. You're such an incredible reader. Um, uh, yeah, so, I, you know, Woody Allen said 90% of life is showing up. And in my family, that's a really big thing and among my friends. And, uh, and I think having friends and brothers and sisters around, my mother, um, is uh, uh, just heartening in an amazing way. And so... It, during all of the most challenging times of my life, I think uh, my friends have come together. And, uh, and I think that's what my parents did. And um, it's, it's a way that for 5,000 generations, humans have gotten along. You keep evading my questions about what your personal <laughs> about what your personal strength is, your best qualities, how you show up. We've got another half hour. We'll get there. I'm just acknowledging it for the moment, but we'll skirt it. Um, and, I, and I'll just say this is Ellie Newman on that got me thinking. And I'm speaking with Maxwell Taylor Kennedy about his book Sea Change: A Man, A Boat, A Journey Home. Um, so let's talk about another contradiction. And, and this one, I, I think, arises in your collaborative relationship skills, because you are definitely a team player. And, and it's clear that some of your most joyous moments come from that, from the team coming together and, and finding a solution or having success together. Um, and your ability to work as a team, a team member is great um, in all these fiascos. And yet, there seems to be some faltering when it comes to setting accurate expectations. And, and in many situations, it seemed dire. <laughs> You resort to sort of manipulation, deflection, and even kidnapping at one point, which you, you might argue there wasn't <laughs> malicious intent, but I'm guessing if you were acting as the, the prosecutor, you would win the case that, yes, this was a, a kidnapping. Um, <laughs> are, are those behaviors that you are aware of at the time and feel that they're, they're necessary? Do you think if you just laid it all out uh, as is and just asked that, that they wouldn't, wouldn't come along? Oh, I, when I left port with those guys asleep on the boat, uh, no, they definitely would not have come along. <laughs> There's nothing I could have said to get them 
to stay on that to to do any mile of that trip. Um, so yeah, I think I probably, as a prosecutor, would would succeed in uh, in getting a conviction on myself for the kidnapping. So, so, but you know, so it was is, brief, and I did did release them at the first port we came. To. Yeah, yeah. But so, how is that okay? Because you're definitely a person, obviously, of of high integrity, um, and relationships are so important to you. So, h- how does that get justified in the moment? I think in the moment, I, I just know that I, I knew that it's a great question, that these kids had worked for so long and so hard and were just sick of it. And I felt that they really deserved the chance to sail once on a schooner and to sail on a 100-year-old vessel that um, is uh, unchanged and, and to experience that connection. And I'll bet that if you asked either of them, they would say that that sale was one of the greatest moments of their lives. So what, what did you, when you were writing the book, or now um, that it's been written, what do you hope that readers come away with? Hmm. That's a really good question. What do I hope that readers come away with? Well, I, as I said at the beginning, I, I wasn't really thinking about... Sh- I, I was thinking of not sharing this with any readers. Um... So, I mean, for one thing, there is value in just hearing a story. Um, and um, I guess, uh, I guess, if you're not a sailor, that the value in this is just understanding that uh, the search is enough, and um, the the only way you get to that is by committing to the search and to being yourself. And that's kind of uh, the struggle in the end. I mean, we're, we're, we're searching, you know, on the trip, but we're also searching for myself the whole time. And, and I think all of us are doing that to some degree. Don't you? I do. And I was struck by your bravery in sharing the adventure and in your internal journey because I think every one of us struggles daily with these repetitive um, choices we make. And, and maybe in, in some situations, what we see as bad decisions. And, and to give us a, a longer lanyard and say, well, you know what? Maybe they weren't bad choices. Maybe we just need to look a little deeper and see where is the value there, um, especially when we're in the deep of it. Um, and it, it seemed like that's what you were able to do. And I love that idea, Ellie. Um, the, uh, the idea of looking at these things that we're told are bad choices. Um, and uh, we, we learn our bad choices and to figure out that they're not always. And, and they help us figure out who we are. It's, that is just great. You, you know, you say you're not sure people that don't sail will understand it, but you have a quote by T.S. Eliot, and it says, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. And if someone reads your book and then they read that quote once or twice, I can't imagine that they can't put themselves um, right along there with you as to understanding why you might do the things you did. Yeah, it's funny. Then the next line is, like a patient etherized upon a table. Um, and it's, uh, which is someone who is sort of essentially blacked out. Um, and 
I think um, adventure can kind of be both of those things. You said if you'd known what would befall you that you're at sea, you'd have sold the boat and gone home with your family. And and again, and, and at one point you call it, you know, that, that it was a, possibly a fool's errand that came to naught. And I'm like, really? Really? Do you really believe that? I'm sure there were moments you thought it. Um, but in hindsight, what's your feeling about the trip? I mean, I love the sea and I love sailing. And I think that um, the trip was a result of that, and writing the book kind of uh, gave me, in the end, permission to live that life more fully and to commit to that side of myself. You, you said, for me, the truly brave thing is not holding the wheel of a schooner as she breaks up in a storm, which <laughs> which she did um, a number of times, really big storms, um, but committing to the intimacy of marriage and being present in the lives of my children and I'm wondering if it was the year at sea that changed something in you or the, the years after, or if there was, was a really a, a change or really a reframing of what you saw when you looked inside. Um, that's another really good question and a really great observation. And I think um, you're right that it's, it's not a change, it's a reframing. And... Um, and I like the idea very much that um, it's not so important that we change as that we understand. I was speaking with my sister Rory about this the other day and whether or not it's action that gets us to think right or changing the way you're thinking about yourself and your life that helps you to um, be happier. And at the beginning of my life, I thought it was that Action is the key to right thinking, and I pretty much think just the opposite now. And maybe it depends on the person, and maybe it depends on where that person is in their life as well. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, uh, uh, I am a lot older than I was then, and it's, it's easier to see that, I think, when you're older. So at one point in the trip, you leave the boat for repairs, um, and <laughs> we're like, oh, no, what's happening? Don't go, don't go. Um, but you return to find um, no repairs have been made, and the the gentleman you left the boat with has been taking your Boston Whaler, which is your uh, survival, um, your last survival kind of. He turns out not to be, but, you know, that's your the, the last card to play if things go really badly. Um, for joy rides in your Boston Whaler for money and, and has broken it. Um, I'm wondering where that desire to trust when everything around you is saying not to. And you, you talk a lot throughout the book wonderfully about your, your relationship with your wife, Vicki, and you say, you know, she always is right. But one would notice, an, a, 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 a cute observer, that you don't listen to her most of the time. Never. Um, you, and, and, and terrible. You don't, you don't listen to yourself <laughs> either. Um, so you, you thought that this guy couldn't be trusted. But there was something that makes you do it anyway. And I'm wondering if you've discerned any enlightenment around that, if why you want want to um, trust people that maybe don't seem to deserve to be trusted? What, what is it you hope will be different? Oh, that's such a good, good, good question. And I, 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 I don't know exactly what it is, but I really, really do want to see the absolute best in people. And when I look at someone, I really see, I think, 
especially someone who's a little bit naughty, I see the best person they they could be. I see them perhaps a little bit the way a father looks at a child um, and, you know, can never be really angry at them and just uh, wants them to be happy and, and loving and uh, and lead a full life. And so... Yeah, I trusted all of these guys who were basically crooks and thieves and and miscreants of one kind or another. Um, but I don't regret it. And I think that's such an important um, element to put out there for, for anyone who reads the book as well, because we all do that in our lives where we might be in a relationship that's really not satisfying or filling, but we see the good and we want to believe that that's the whole person instead of saying, yes, yeah. there's good, but that other per- part is real too. And it's the whole package. Um, and, and do we want the whole package or do we want to maybe seek someone else who's, who's maybe got more of that good element, but that these are choices. It's, that's a really, really good point. And, um, you know, especially in the relationships that we get to choose. Um, and, you know, it's okay to choose someone who has a lot of faults and a lot of, you know, the, the negative side. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all, this sounds so trite, but we're all human beings and we all face these difficulties and challenges and yeah i like to give people a chance i do and that probably has drawn me to a lot of problematic relationships um but i don't think that those are necessarily um as problematic as you know an outsider might say looking looking in at it well, it all seemed to work out. You had a really good time in a lot of those moments. And and luckily, you're someone who is very willing and comfortable to be extremely uncomfortable um, in an extremely uncomfortable situation, both physically and emotionally. Oh and So what was, uh, on the trip, the lowest low moment? <laughs> That's a really funny question. There were so many low, low moments. I think... Um, the time that I realized that the uh, pipes in the in the head, which is the bathroom, had been uh, reversed, and that the entire boat was completely filled with feces, and um, and I had to essentially submerge myself in that, and uh, uh, the only way to clean it was to go in myself, and scrub it, and pump it, and um, and and brush it out, and make the boat clean. And, I mean, we're all, I don't know if we're all, but at some point in our lives, I think everybody is covered in their own shit and their friend's shit, and you just have to kneel down and start cleaning. And uh, uh, and, and it's in, incredibly uh, uplifting. When the moment, so I'm at the worst moment, I'm knee-deep in this stuff, and five or six hours later, I'm sitting in a in a beautiful estuary in El Salvador, holding a completely clean tank, and uh, and prepared to go back and go on a great day sailing. You talk. I would about... say also that drinking the bleach was awful. Uh, yeah, I was just about to to bring that one up. Um, yeah, and so maybe tell how you ended up drinking bleach. Well, we were in uh, Costa Rica, and the uh, bottled water there is, uh, most of the water, the largest water bottling company has a blue-tinted bottle. 
and uh, so we had some. Uh, I had some professionals actually come in to clean the boat. The housekeepers at a at a little hotel came in, and um, they left. Uh, they left. They didn't want to throw out the bleach because uh, it cost money, and so they left uh, half of a bottle of bleach in the boat. And it's funny. Someone had brought bananas on the boat, which everybody in New England knows is a terrible thing to do, and one of the worst things you can ever do to a boat is bring bananas on board. Um, it's bad. It's bad luck, and it really, uh, really screws things up. So I got up in the morning, about uh, very early in the morning, covered with sweat, um, in this very, very hot, stinking uh, jungle area of Costa Rica, and saw. Uh, the bottle there and I thought isn't that funny that bottle is just where the bananas were that I had thrown out and I uh, picked up the bottle and I uh, chugged it and uh, it was the bleach and it just burned my mouth and burned my throat and I began puking violently and having this frothy stuff come out of my mouth and and I I tried to climb up the, the stairs to the cockpit of the boat and I fell down and then I I crawled back up the stairs and I saw a boat near enough to rescue me and I stood up and I screamed and no sound came out of my mouth, just a little hoarse cry. And, uh, and I fell back down and I thought to myself, you know, if you don't deal with this very soon, your mind is going to stop working and you're not going to be able to. Because I could feel myself getting fuzzier and fuzzier. And I was able to stand just long enough to hold a life jacket up, which is an international sign of distress. And a fellow came and brought me to shore. Um, and eventually, um, I made it to a hospital and uh, where they put the, uh, the hoses down my throat and, and fixed me up. So, <laughs> so, so I skipped about a, a bunch of... Crazy yeah, but you got. But that's why everyone's going to read the book um, because then they can read about all the crazy stuff in in wonderful, explicit detail. But at the beginning of the book, you talk about you believe that one should trust their instincts and go with their gut. Um, and in many times, you say I noticed, but, but dismissed um, the flaws of the boat, or the flaws in people, or or the flaws in the situation. And and I'm just wondering, I want to talk a little about your relationship to God because there are so many signs. Um, one, the bananas. Uh, it took me a while to, to understand why bananas were so bad. Um, but there there are other signs along the way, and they seem to be flashing, you know, very brightly. Uh, the boat broker at the beginning, the black crows. Everyone who comes on the boat tells you. They don't want to come on the boat because they have a bad feeling. Um, and at one point, and you sort of acknowledge them, but that, but move forward. And I think we all understand now, you know, why. But towards the very end of the journey, you ask God, and I think this was post-bleach, you ask God for a sign. And I'm wondering if um, you figured that out, what God was telling you. Definitely not. Definitely not. I have no ability to receive uh, the word of God directly and clearly, um, and and I think that the, the the I don't I, I I was just saying how great it would be if if God could speak to you and just tell you what to do. But but uh, didn't and, didn't what happened? So so you tell you ask God. Do you remember what you asked God in that moment standing on the deck and what happened after? After I, I know that the moment after I said it that that a really strange wind that I've never seen or before or after 
hit the boat so hard on a on a otherwise calm day, filled up the sail that was on the deck and lifted me up and out of the boat, turned me upside down, and I landed in the water. This was three or four seconds after I finished saying that. And and I came up um, underneath the sail and unable to get air. And I, I just made it out um, before I ran out of breath. Um, and um, and then I climbed up onto the boat and immediately dismissed that as a uh, as a mere happenstance. And and I think you had asked God, should you go on? And and to me, it took me a while. Oh, God, I had to, I, I had did. to think about it because I I, you know sometimes it is hard to read the oracles, right? And I had to think about it for a little while. But but a couple hours later, I was like, oh, it's so obvious. It's like just God saying, well, sure, go on if you want more of this. Like I've got yeah. plenty more. I've got plenty more to dole out. Um, what what the rest of this trip will be like. I'm sorry. What was it, it seemed like God was saying, "I've got you know, I've got plenty more where where the last years come from. And if more. this is what you're interested in, you know, this is this is what going forward will be like. Um, struggle but survival, but still okay. But still okay. Struggle but survival. Yeah, struggle, but and survival. still okay. You figured it yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Um, I don't know if God exists. Do you? Uh, there's, there is some God type something, um, I believe. And, and, and one of the things I noticed that, that you had said early on that I thought was so poignant and, and I think everyone in the universe can relate to it is talking about having this sort of free floating fear that, that resides in you and that actually these situations where the there's certainty in the fear that it makes sense that your boat's breaking apart and the engine isn't working and the the diesel fuel is is muddied and and things are starting to break off the ship that those are moments where the fear makes sense and that you can figure out what to do with it and so in a way it's it's the you say um the fear of certainty is more comfortable and and I think that makes sense um, to anyone that 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 again it, it, it's a reason why uh, you may set yourself up for these things and and I last I guess about six months ago I started a um, a journal that is uh, what I know is true. And I started mm. to write things down, like things similar to what happened to you on the boat when you asked God if you should go forward. And moments later, there was this inexplicable wind that swept you off the side. Um, that that these are answers to show that there is something that you know we're not alone, and 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 the universe or God or whatever we might call it has our back. Um, and I'm wondering if you have found ways to challenge yourself without the calamity or if you've accepted some of the calamity as being necessary for you, for you to experience these 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 challenges and and succeed that was an amazing set of thoughts that you just expressed and i think you know when i say that i don't know if god exists it's it's just what you were saying that we have to rely on our sense and our faith um uh, because I, we really, I, nobody I know can actually physically know. And so there's this sense that there's um, someone out there who cares about us. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's better to trust in that um, than, uh, than to rely on being alone. 
And you can slowly go about gathering evidence. <laughs> you can start your notebook with the sign from God. And, and yeah, gather, yeah. So, you know, when you, say, when you say um, that, uh, that, that there's a, a comfort in certainty, there re- I think there really is. And that, um, that it's when we get out of the comfort zone and have to rely on faith and our sense of... Uh, our sense of the universe, our sense of what's right and wrong, our sense of connection, um, that um, that is when I really um, think I feel uh, to start to live. Um, when I can be open to that connection. Um, and And it's really easy for me to shut it down and just go from problem to problem. Um, trying to stall, solve solve those, and so, um, for for maybe for some people, a storm would be very difficult, but for me, stepping out of my comfort zone is the difficult thing, and I'm okay in a storm. I'm not, uh, or I wasn't then okay with the uncertainty of. Uh, my relationships and my friendships and my relationship with God. And and what shifted? Oh my God, what shifted? Um, I th- I think frankly, what shifted is um, is I I I, uh, I think I was. Well, I know I was in a huge depression that had lasted for many years and that um, I was lifted out of that. And, and I think that that's, that was a combination of spirituality, family, and, and, you know, the miracles of modern medicine. And what do you know about yourself to be true that you weren't sure of before? Uh, that's easy. Um, that I am beloved. There's, I think I, I think I put the quote from from uh, Carver, Raymond Carver, in the book um, that he wrote to Tess when he was, or to when he was writing at home, I think, from the rehab, um, and he said, uh, and what. Uh, and did you get what you wanted out of this life even so? I did. And what was that? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And um, I have that now. I don't know. I can't say directly that that was um, a, a direct result of the trip. And I don't think in the end that I needed to test myself in those ways in order to feel that love, to feel the love of other human beings. Um, but that's the way I did it. And I think that's a lesson to us all. I mean, it, it, it's it, the way maybe isn't as important as the doing. And for you, that way makes sense. If you look back at your, at your childhood and, and the, the, what the sea has been for you since you were born and, and throughout your adolescence and the relationships and the lessons and all of it, it makes perfect sense.
Mm. I'm looking out at the ocean as we're speaking, and uh, I'm recalling a man I met earlier this year who was uh, a, a boat worker, and he told me that he had never gone a single day in his life. Uh, he was an older man. Um, he'd never gone a single day in his life without seeing the ocean. And his uh, mother or father had him on a trip uh, when he was about 14, and he went for about 10 hours without being able to see the, the, the sea. And it made him more disconcerted than anything else that had ever happened to him. And he never cared about how hard he worked. And, you know, he was taken out of school in fifth or sixth grade and, and worked his whole life um, but as long as he could see that ocean, he was connected and he was good. And how wonderful for you that you have the sea and if everyone else can find their sea. You know, what mm. is, what is uh, for the rest mm. of us, what, what is our sea? And then be lucky enough to have the family and friends um, that you found in your life. And, and probably not luck, you've, you've earned them. Um, to no, have them I think it's so unbelievably lucky. Supporting you. I don't know. I think we're, we're so, people, we all, what we do here is talk about how unbelievably lucky we are to have each other and to have the ocean here. And the fact is that, you know, if you go into the African-American neighborhoods, on the low-income neighborhoods in almost every city in the United States, the children in schools have no idea that they live on the ocean. They've never seen the ocean. They don't know why the cities are connected by the sea. They don't know how the sea connects us at all. And if you give them an opportunity to experience that, even for a short while, it really changes something. Which we, I think, frankly, is is one reason that the middle of the United States voted for Trump. <laughs> we almost got through an entire interview without mentioning his name. Oh, oh God, curses, I'm sorry. Curses. Oh, my God. Oh, Max. Horrible. Max. Let's backtrack on that. Let's get rid of that but, horrible But you name. know what brought it? It's brought us full circle to the pearl and to the beginnings of, of your adventure, and that was both... Um, one for the betterment of society and also for yourself. And, and so I want everyone listening um, to get your book, Sea Change, A Man About a Journey by Maxwell Taylor Kennedy. And with that, do some research on, on what, what uh, the Institute is now doing through the, the Pearl and, and with kids in D.C. who maybe haven't had a relationship with the ocean and, and um, also with, the, with some of that history. Wait, sorry. Did uh, did you just end the interview, or am I supposed to talk about that? No, no I think we're I think we're done. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you have a response, that that's so good, good, and I'll edit a little more. But if not, no, we're done. Well, so thank you so much. Oh, you pleasure Speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. That was an amazing interview. Yeah, I really have I've never had such a thoughtful interviewer in uh, my life. Well, it was, it was wonderful to speak with you. Wonderful to read the book. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, have a great day. You too, Max. Bye-bye.